This morning, I want to continue um, our lesson from last week. I love the book of Acts. I love the history of the church. And it seems like no matter what we're going through in our society, in our church, we can go to the book of Acts and we can find it there. We can find out what to do, what they did with these different problems. So I want to continue on from our lesson from last week. And if you wanted to entitle this message, you might entitle it just a reasonable faith. That's what we have is a reasonable faith. Now, Paul had been in prison for two years and he was accused of disturbing the peace in Jerusalem. And Felix, the governor who had detained him, he had now been replaced by Festus, a governor with a much better reputation. Well, the Jews badgered Festus to have a retrial of the Apostle Paul because they desperately wanted to kill him. They did not want Paul alive. And Paul, knowing that he would not get a, uh, uh, a fair trial in Jerusalem, he exercised his right as a Roman citizen and he appealed directly to Caesar himself. Now, Festus had no recourse but to send Paul to Rome but still he had a problem here. You know, here's Festus. He, know he, he knew he needed to send Paul to Rome, but his problem was he didn't know what crime to charge Paul with, you know, for such an important trial. Because as we know, Paul was really innocent. You know, these were trumped up charges. So um, Festus, he didn't know. Like, what am I going to charge him with? Well, about that time, Festus received a very welcome visit from King Agrippa, a Jewish ruler. He was presiding over a, a small area of northern Palestine around Galilee. Well, Festus, he told King Agrippa about his difficulty with Paul. And Agrippa, who was evidently, he was intrigued by Christianity, um, told him, says, I would like to hear this man myself. So he was kind of intrigued about Christianity. I was like, I want to hear him. Um, so now we have this kind of dramatic setting. I'm trying to get you into the story here. And let's go to Acts 25 and verse 23. This whole story is going to come out of Acts 25 and 26. As you know, I didn't print all of that scripture, but I pulled out a few that we'll, we'll tag along the way. Well, in the 23rd verse of Acts 25, it says the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, um, Paul was brought in. Now, if you can imagine this scene here, I don't know how you imagine maybe the, the courtroom or the, the meeting room there, the audience room. Here's uh, um, Agrippa, King Agrippa. He came dressed in his purple robe. I mean, he was all decked out, looked like a king, and he had on his gold crown and the whole thing. And Bernice was wearing all of her jewelry and all of the status symbols that would be so important to insecure people. And Festus, the governor, you know, he was wearing his scarlet robe and with the drum roll, he, he entered with his bodyguard and all of the, color, uh, the colorful legionnaires. The, the Bible says that they came in with high-ranking officers and, and the leading men of the city. Now, this place was just jam-packed with people. 
anybody who was anybody of any importance, they were there at this, this gathering. All the VIPs were there. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. If you can picture this in your mind, all these dignitaries and great people there, and then Paul brought in. So in walked this little unimpressive Jewish tent maker with his hands tied. Now you can just picture that. Tradition tells us that Paul was short, he was bald-headed, and bandy-legged, whatever bandy-legged means. So you just kind of get the picture. Here's all this greatness around here, and Paul walked in the way he looks. Well, regardless of his physical appearance, Paul had so much charisma um, that immediately when he walked in the room, every eye was focused on him. Paul was filled with the Spirit of God, and he had that kind of power and presence. Now, right here, you can see a, a, a prophecy unfolding right before your eyes. I want to take you back to Matthew, the 10th chapter, and verses 18 through 20. It says this, On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now you can just see this prophecy being unfolded right here at this scene with Paul being brought in there. So, um, Paul was not intimidated by this audience. You see, this is at least the sixth trial that he had been through in the last two years. So Paul wasn't intimidated by all this greatness in, in this room. And Paul, he gave a brilliant defense. He just gave his personal testimony. Now, we talked about that last, last week. You see, if you give people an argument, they can give you a counter-argument. But if you give your personal testimony, it's irrefutable. They can believe it or they can disbelieve it, but they can't argue with it. So this was brilliant on Paul's part. So Paul told his audience how he had once been um, a zealous Jew who hated and persecuted Christians. Sometimes he even put them to death. So this is what Paul was saying. But one day, as he was making his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, um, a bright light fell from heaven and just knocked him down to the ground. Look at verse 15 in our text. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Then Jesus told Paul that he was going to send him throughout the world to open people's eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Look at verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Look at 22 through 23. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And then verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. 
your great learning is driving you insane. Someone once told me the, the definition of shouting. They said, shouting is attempt of a limited mind to express itself. I thought that was pretty good. So I wrote that down. Shouting is an attempt of a limited mind to express itself. Folks, if you believe in the, the message of the Bible, and I know you do, but if you believe in the message of the Bible, there's going to be some people going to tell you that you've lost your mind. You'll run into them one day. Somebody, they'll tell you, you've lost your mind. They'll say things. You mean you believe in the creation story? You believe in Noah and the flood? You believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? You believe that someday, someday he's coming back to earth? You've got to be crazy. No intelligent person believes any of that anymore. That you can hear. Every day of your life, you can hear it. And if your faith begins to affect your daily life, people will think you've really gone off the deep end. They may say something like this to you. Well, it's okay if you go to church occasionally, you know, and, and, and be nice to people. That's okay. Um, but when you go to church all the time and you begin to sacrifice a tenth of your income to support it, and when you sacrifice your worldly pleasures and when Christianity begins to affect the way that you think and the way that you feel and the way that you behave every day, then you flipped out, you've lost your mind. Now, there are people out there that believe just like that and they will tell you that. You will run into them occasionally. And I know, we all know, the message from the media is pretty clear. If you take the Bible seriously, if you take Christianity to heart, you're going to end up being a wacko. You know, you'll be the ones that are out bombing abortion clinics or something like that. You'll be an extremist. You know, like Festus said, all that learning is driving you insane. But Paul's response was calm and it was confident. And folks, there is so much we can learn from that. We see this kind of attitude in our world every day. But there's so much we can learn on how Paul responded and why he responded the way he did. His response was calm and it was confident. Look at verse 25. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. Let me say something with confidence this morning. Being dedicated, being a dedicated believer of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most sane and most rational way of life, period. It's the non-committed person who really isn't thinking too clearly. You know, well, to get on with our story here, the Apostle Paul, um, he could, and we can too, be really confident for several reasons. Number one is this, it is true. It is true. Folks, first of all, I want you to know that Christianity is valid. You know, and what Paul said, what I'm saying is true. But the skeptics, certainly they suggest that Christianity is anti-intellectual. There's a lot of people that think that, that science deals with facts and Christianity deals um, not with facts, but with ethics. Look at verse 26 here. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not 
done in a corner. And that's the part, if you just underline that, you can see um, some really neat stuff about that. You see, the facts about Jesus were a matter of public record. They were historically true. He lived at a definite point on the globe, Palestine. Um, he died on a very real cross. His resurrection from the dead was a literal event. It's not something that's imagined in our minds. This is not something that happened in a corner. This is a matter of history. Several years ago, uh, in an unusual meeting, um, took place at, at Harvard University. Hundreds of students gathered to hear the address of Professor J.M.D. Anderson, Dean of Faculty Law of the University of London. And Anderson's brilliant address, he surveyed the evidence of Jesus' resurrection from the viewpoint of a lawyer. And he smashed many of the theories that have tried to explain away the resurrection. He closed his address by listing a number of historical facts that would have to be explained in some other way um, if the resurrection didn't happen. He said, if there were no resurrection, he asked, how do you explain that the Christian church could be traced back to the first century when the New Testament says its founder was raised from the dead? Is there any other theory um, that fits those facts? And then he says, how do you explain the success of the early church? How did the apostles make thousands of converts in Jerusalem by preaching about the resurrection when any one of those people could have taken a short walk to the tomb to prove that it wasn't true? They were there. They knew it was true, you see. What changed the apostles? What changed Peter from being a man who denied three times that he even knew Jesus to a man who after the resurrection, he, uh, resurrection, he openly defied the, the priests concerning the resurrection. You know, what changed James, the brother of Jesus who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, to the place where after the resurrection he became a leader in the New Testament church? What changed that? What changed Paul from being a, a, a persecutor to an apostle? You know, none of these things were done in a corner. They weren't hidden. Paul said the documents are there to examine. The evidence is there for you to consider. And if you cannot accept the historicity of the resurrection, what explanation do you have? I mean, Paul's argument here, his discourse, it was brilliant. And when you think about these, these, these things here. Um, so in defense, in his defense, Paul asked two questions that we need to consider as well. The two questions he asked, one was a philosophical question in Acts um, 26 and verse 8. He said, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You have to believe that either you're here by creation or by accident. And if you're here by creation, the God who made you, the God who made life, and the God who created this universe can do anything. You see, he is certainly capable of raising people from the dead if he can create everything that we see. And if you're here by accident, then you have to believe in a series of coincidences so incredible that it's a lot tougher to believe in them than it is to believe in the resurrection. 
It just makes sense. The second question he asked was a biblical question. In verse 27, do you believe the prophets? Paul asked. You know, how are you going to explain the Old Testament predictions about the coming of Jesus if Christianity is not factual? What a good argument. What a wonderful question there. See, you know, we can't tell with all of our sophisticated equipment, we can't predict the weather tomorrow. I know we couldn't even predict it today. I was told it wasn't going to rain. <laughs> and we've already seen rain today. You know, we can't predict the outcome of a ball game this afternoon, but the Bible accurately predicted over 60 specific events about Jesus hundreds of years before he was born. Folks, that's incredible. That is not coincidence. You cannot do that, not that many times in a row. The Old Testament predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. Was he? Absolutely. Said that he would grow up in Nazareth. Yeah. That he would come out of Egypt. Yeah. That he would um, be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Yeah. That he would be executed on a cross between thieves. Yes. That, he, um, that his side would be pierced. That he would be buried in a borrowed tomb. That people would cast lots for his garments. And that he would raise from the dead. You know, since the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls 74 years ago, and with the carbon-14 method of dating, we know that these scrolls containing these specific predictions go back several hundred years before Jesus was born. And if you compare those predictions with the historical facts, you have to acknowledge that Christianity is historically valid. I mean, it is true. It is common sense. You look at it, you cannot deny it. I'd like to take you to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Man, that's powerful. It didn't happen in a closet. It was there for everyone to see. Back to our text in verse 26. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. So, we can be confident because number one, it's true. Number two, it works. We can be confident because it works. Christianity is reasonable because it can be pragmatically applied. You see, Paul zeroed in on Agrippa. The room was packed. Now, if you can just picture this, I mean... Agrippa was his target. He kind of just zeroed in on that. He looked Agrippa right in the eye and, and said, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, Agrippa, at this point, he was on the spot here. I mean, that was kind of a question. He had no wiggle room to get out of. Everyone was looking at him, and he tried to escape through sarcasm. He said to Paul, look at verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? You see, that's the way people do it today. They say things like, are you trying to convert me or something? Well, you know, it's going to take somebody a lot smarter than you to convert me. Look at verse 29. Then Paul replied, 
short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. You know, the acid test of belief is its effectiveness. The acid test of belief is its effectiveness. Does it work in a practical way, in a practical life? There was a tourist in Chicago. He was appalled when his cab driver just drove right through a red light. And he said, hey man, that light was red. And the taxi driver says, oh, don't worry, don't, don't worry, my brother does it all the time. They came to a second red light. The cab driver just cruised right on through that red light. And the tourist said, man, that, that's dangerous. Man, you're going to get us killed. And the driver says, don't worry about it. My brother does it all the time. Then they came to a green light and the driver stopped. And the tourist said, hey, man, that light is green. And the taxi driver says, I know, said the driver, but you never know when my brother will be coming. Skeptics, they've tried to explain Christianity away um, as a delusion or, or some kind of psychological quirk. But the bottom line is, it works. The transforming power of Jesus Christ have left positive influences on people's lives for centuries. And maybe your life is an example of that. I think of the son of Madeline Murray O'Hare, Bill Murray, who was converted to Christianity when he was 33 years old. And he wrote in the Baltimore Sun, apologizing for the fact that he had allowed his mother to use him in removing prayer and Bible reading from schools. He had written a book called My Life Without God, in which he tells the positive changes that occurred in his life since he's come to know the Lord. You see, the power of Jesus Christ and his word changes things. Christianity changes people, you see. Think of a man who had a terrible drinking problem, and he was a super kind and nice man up until he had this drinking problem. And this, this uh, grip of alcoholism just had him and it overcome him and he couldn't get rid of it. But one day he prayed, Lord Jesus, if I'm going to overcome this problem, you've got to help me. And he took every bottle of alcohol that he had and he poured it down the drain. And he never touched liquor again. You know, and there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of testimonies just like that. Many of us, we've grown up in church and maybe we don't have a dramatic uh, testimony that way. But I can tell you what, we are thankful that the Lord has prevented some of those problems from scarring our lives. You see, hundreds of thousands of people um, have had dramatic changes in their lives that cannot be explained psychologically. Christianity is evident in their lives in a practical way. It has worked. In Psalms, the 34th chapter in verse 8, I mean, says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So we can be confident because number one, it's true. Number two, it works. And the third reason is it's needed. It is needed. There are skeptical people that suggest that only weak people need the Lord. 
You know, if you're handicapped, you need a crutch. If you're poor, you need welfare. If you're emotionally unstable, you need religion. And some people feel that if you're young, you're intelligent, and you're wealthy, and you're confident, you don't need the church or you don't need the Lord. And probably you know some people that way, but let me tell you something. Paul was young, and he was brilliant, and he was ambitious, and he was wealthy, and God struck him to the ground. Agrippa was powerful, and he was famous, and he was indulgent, but Paul looked at him and said, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. When Jesus appeared to Paul on that Damascus road and, and said to Paul, I want you to be my messenger, he knew how badly people need to hear that message. He knew how badly we needed to hear that message. And all people, regardless of how young or how old or how rich or how famous you are, they need the Lord. Amen? They need Him. They need Him for direction in life. Look at verse 17 and 18. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There was a little, a little boy. He just delighted his atheist uncle when he said his dog had just given birth to atheistic puppies. And when the uncle came a week later to visit, he said, I want to see those puppies. And when the boy showed him, um, the atheist uncle said, now what kind of puppies are those again? Because he wanted to hear the boy say they were atheist puppies. The little boy said, well, these are Christian puppies. And the atheist said, well, I thought you said that they were atheist puppies. And the little boy responded with a smile. That was before they got their eyes open. <laughs> Folks, non-believers has his eyes closed to spiritual truths. And all they're interested in are the things that they can touch themselves, like possessions or pleasure or power or prestige. And they give in to those things. But at the same time, those same people, they're spiritually blind because those things are the only things that matter to them. So they miss the things of the Lord. There's a plaque that reads, I don't know what I want, so why am I killing myself to get it? And you know what? I think that's pretty descriptive of many people in our world today. You know, they don't know what they want. They're killing themselves working to accumulate things um, or indulging themselves in pleasure, but it's really not satisfying to them. But when Jesus Christ comes... He opens our eyes. He gives us a light. We know who we are. We know where we're going. We know we have a purpose in life. You see, the Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Jesus gives us direction. Also, we need Him to conquer evil. We need Him to conquer evil. Look at verse 18. 
to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Satan has awesome power. Sin is addictive. And the drunk, no matter where they are, and the indulgent youth, no matter where they are, they need the Lord desperately to overcome temptation. Michael Ray Richardson, he was an outstanding basketball player in the NBA years ago. But he was kicked out of the league for two years because he failed three straight drug tests. Here's a man who was making $300,000 a year, but he could not resist the evil of cocaine. Only Jesus Christ can give us the power to overcome the temptation of the world. In Romans, the first chapter, verse 16, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Okay. We need him to grant us the cleansing of guilt. Another thing. We need him to grant us the cleansing of guilt. Look at verse 18 again. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It was Albert, <clears throat> Albert Speer. He was interviewed on Good Morning America. Speer, the Hitler confidant, whose technological genius was credited with keeping Nazi factories open throughout World War II. And in another era, era he might have even been um, one of the world's industrial giants because of his intelligence. Well, Charles Coulson, he writes, the only one of 24 war criminals tried in Nuremberg to admit his guilt, Speer spent 20 years in a Spandau prison. And when he was interviewed by David Hartman, <clears throat> David Hartman, he referred to a passage in one of Speer's earlier writings, says, you have said that the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? And he writes this, I will never forget the look of pathos on Spears' face as he responded. I served a sentence of 20 years and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment, but I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime and I can't get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning of cleansing my conscience. Hartman pressed the point. He said, you really don't think you're able to clear your conscience totally? And Spear shook his head. He said, I don't think it would be possible. A few weeks later, Albert Spear died. How desperately he needed to hear the words of Scripture like Isaiah, the first chapter in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And how desperately you and I need to learn the words of that stanza of Rock of Ages. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. 
thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I know no one here has been responsible for millions of uh, people being murdered. But you may have things in your background from which you cannot get that, that, that release from guilt. You cannot atone for those things. You cannot erase them from your memory. But what can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We all need Him for cleansing. We need Jesus. And lastly, we need Him to have hope in death. We need Him to have hope in death. Verse 18, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Folks, to be sanctified means to be set apart for a distinct purpose. And every Christian is set apart for a distinct purpose, and that is the purpose of living eternally with Jesus Christ. I don't care how rich, I don't care how young, I don't care how attractive you are or how brilliant you are. One day, we're going to die and we desperately need Jesus Christ. He is the only one in history who's ever died and risen from the grave under his own power. He is the only one who can legitimately say to you, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Folks, everybody, everybody needs that promise. The world may shout you're out of your mind, but the Bible says in Psalms 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and there is no one who does good. It's a question to leave you with this morning. How can you resist the message of Christianity when it's so true, when it's so effective, and when it's so needed? You see, if it's true that God created you, and it is, and if it's true that you have sinned and alienated yourself from God, and it is, if it is true that God in His love came down and died on the cross to reconcile you to Himself, and it is. If it is true that he rose from the grave to prove that he's the son of God and you can too, and it is. If it's true that God said, Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And that's true too, folks. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for giving us a faith that's so reasonable. It's so easy to understand. Father, we thank you for preparing for us from the very beginning. It just shows us how much you loved us before we were even born. Father, we thank you for that. Help us take this message and share it with others. Help us to shine our light on you so people can see you and understand that you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. Father, we thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.